You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Today's reading is from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. And if you've got one of our church Bibles, you can find it on page 1044. I'll give you a second to find the page. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them, but now put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. In Christ, there is no Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so um, I spent the first 24 years of my life up until I got married in uh, Diamond Creek, living in the same house on the same property in Diamond Creek. It's sort of northeast of Melbourne. And most of my life growing up, it was semi-rural. We lived on a a fairly big property, and it was bordered by the creek itself. So our property was just teeming with chock full of tiger snakes. And we just, they were like under our feet, constantly through the warmer months. We used to have a shovel at the front door, a shovel at the back door, and it was because every now and then you'd walk out and just about step on one. They, uh, I think I've got a, a picture of one here in case you've never come across one. They, they, um, they actually, they vary a lot. Sometimes they're just, they just look brown. So other times they have very bold patterns like that one. I personally am a huge fan of them, uh, and all snakes. I'm a big fan big snake fan, but there's no doubt that they are dangerous animals. I think the tiger snake has, it's like the third or fourth uh, most potent venom of any snake in the world, and these, these snakes are, um, they have this habit of not getting out of the way. Um, other snakes will take off as soon as they feel the vibrations of your footsteps coming towards them. Tiger snakes just aren't fussed. And um, so trouble happens more often than not when you either are trying to kill one or happen to stand on one by accident. So we just kind of grew up knowing that they were around and being wary um, in the warmer months that, you know, they could be just about anywhere. I remember uh, as a kind of early, in my early teens, um, I used to do some work around the property for my dad as a way to get money, and, um, and I was cleaning up an old shed uh, on our property, and the shed was just next to the original cottage that was on the property that my parents bought from an, an elderly woman, the cottage that she lived in, and we would uh, rent this cottage out, and the family that were living in the cottage was this classic hippie family, just, just you know, like 400 kids, and... Um, and the reason they loved living in that place was because it was really simple, run down, um, and out of the way of everyone. So they, they, they loved living there, and we loved having them. They were really, you know, hippies, you know? They were, they were kind of just chill. And, um, and, but anyway, I was working just near the house. I was moving a bunch of pipes, and as I um, moved one, a tiger snake came out of it, and... 
um, made its way straight towards their cottage and to their front step, and on their front step was a bassinet with one of their many kids in it. And so I just kind of ran into the house and told the dad, you know, there's a tiger snake on your front porch and your kid is there. And his response struck me. I'll never forget it. He kind of just looked at me and I said, you know, we should probably deal with it, um, by which I meant like cut off its head. And um, he just looked at me and said, you know, we... We, um, I'd, I'd rather not ki- kill it. Um, we like to live and let live. And um, which was, you know, so, such a hippie thing to say. And, and, and I'm cool with that. Like, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm down with that. Except when the third or fourth deadliest snake in the world is hanging out with your toddler, all right? That's, that's when you start killing things. And it just strikes me that If we're not careful, this can be like our attitude towards sin in our lives, right? Like, we have this experience in this life of having to deal with sin, and if we're not careful and if we imbibe too much the culture around us, then we can start treating sin on those kinds of terms. Like, we know that it's bad, we know that it's potentially dangerous, but we kind of like to just live and let live. We kind of make peace with something that is deadly, dangerous. My sort of assessment of Christian history when it comes to dealing with sin, attitude towards sin, um, is that uh, if, you, if you go back hundreds of years, this seemed to be a topic that really preoccupied the church. If you read the liturgies and the literature of the time, there was this preoccupation with and um, high um, like state of alertness when it comes to the threat of sin, the danger of sin, And if I'm reading it right, we just don't seem to have that consciousness in the church today. There aren't that many books that I know of that are treatments of, instructions on, explorations of how to kill sin, the threat of sin. My, like I just looked at my own library in preparation for this week and my three best books and three of the only books I've got on this topic are all from the 17th century. The Doctrine of Repentance, The Mortification of Sin, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Books used to have better titles than they do now, and and books used to be written about the seriousness of sin, the deadly danger of sin, and I just don't know if we're talking about it much anymore. So when it came to coming up with a kind of standalone topic for today's sermon, I thought this might be worth our while. Sometimes I wonder if our, the, the view of the, of the modern day church, our church, the churches around us, if our view of Jesus has shifted from the original view, which is this, Jesus is both Savior and Lord, Right? He's the, he's, he's the sacrificial lamb who dies to forgive our sins, and he's the ruling and reigning Lord who calls us to obedience. I think we've, we've really shifted in the last, even maybe just the last 20 or so years, way over to Jesus is our Savior. Thank you, Lord. He, he forgives me. And we've moved away from Jesus is the king who tells me what to do, Has, like makes commands for me to obey. And what happens when, when, when you start shifting in your view about who Jesus is, it, it's, it shifts how you live because we, we follow a savior, right? We follow a Lord, we're following Jesus. So if we think mainly of Jesus as the, the, the sacrificial lamb who forgives me and we depart from the ruling reigning king who commands me, 
then it affects how we live. And I think this is the product of that, right? This, this diminishing of the urgency to deal with sin, the danger to my soul that sin poses might be because of, because of that. Great illustration from Scripture of who Jesus is is when he's talking to the woman caught in adultery, right? Remember, she's caught in the act of adultery. People want to stone her, kill her. Jesus says, let him who is out without sin cast the first stone. And then what he says to her is perfect. He says, I don't condemn you and go and sin no more. That's who Jesus is. You get that? Savior and Lord. No condemnation, go and sin no more. As soon as we, we start to prize one over the other or give more weight to one than the other, then we fall into all kinds of trouble as far as following Jesus goes. So here this morning, I'm hoping it's just a little bit of a corrective, not like swinging the pendulum back the other way so that we all walk out like, like anxious, worried, condemned, guilty, but just redressing the balance a little bit. Jesus has saved us, and we need to put sin to death. So, we're going to do that by looking through this passage that Joanna just read us from Colossians chapter 3, and uh, I've got kind of like a uh, three, three points. By the way, Josh, I never have three-point sermons, so, and some of you hate that, um, because you want to have something to hang on, and I just ramble all over the place, so you're welcome. It's kind of like three steps to killing sin, all right, that's, that's where we're going this morning, and the first, first step is to know who you are, know who you are. I don't, I don't know much if anything, about boxing or just fighting in general, but I do know that stance is really important. Like, if you see two dudes fighting in the street and one of them's just open like this and one of them looks like this, you know who's going to win that fight, all right? It's the guy who's like this, just so you know, because stance is really important if you're going to win a fight. And so, when it comes to the fight against sin, I want us to have a certain stance that prepares us to fight. And that stance, the foundation for going into battle, is to know who you are. Know who you are. Know your identity. We live in a culture that is obsessed by identity, and we'll get to more about that in a little bit. But let me read, first of all, verse 1 to 4 of Colossians 3. Just listen out for who Paul says you are. He says, So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Do you see that? Raised with Christ, hidden with Christ, bound for glory with Christ. Every element of who you are, your identity, is derivative of what Christ has done for you. You don't carve something out for yourself. You don't assume an identity for yourself. Who you are has been declared by the ruler of the universe. It's eternally bound up with his will. You've been raised with Christ. Because Christ died and was raised again, you have been raised with him by faith. It's called communion with Christ. Union with Christ been raised with Christ, you died and your life is hidden with Christ, and your destiny, your inevitable destiny, 
his glory with Christ. So now that forms the basis of how you live your life. That forms the basis of your beliefs about who is, about who you are, and about how you should live. So he says, so if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is. We need to know who we are if we're going to survive this life riddled with sin which is out to destroy us. The power of sin is to make us forget ourselves. Do you recognize that? The power of sin is to make us forget ourselves. I used to run three services a week in nursing homes back when I worked in Doncaster. And it was beautiful and terrible. It, it was beautiful to see a bunch of people who didn't have a lot going for them. To be able to share the gospel with them and then to see them sing hymns that they knew their whole life long that reminded of them of who they are. But it was terrible, it was tragic to see family members visit those people and for those people not to even recognize their own family. There are so many people in those nursing homes who are just lost to dementia. And it's, like it's terrible to witness. God save us from having to go through that ourselves. That's the power of sin. Sin is like spiritual dementia. It makes us forget who we are. It, 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 it takes us to a point where we don't even recognize our Father anymore. So the stance that we need to assume if we're going to battle and win is to remember who we are, who God says we are. One of the things I learned recently, more recently in my Christian life, is the power of speaking to reinforce believing. Like, I get that we believe things and then say them, but what I've learned is that we often say things in order to believe them. This, the church has always believed this. This is why we have liturgies, why we sing songs. Have you ever stood up to sing and, and thought to yourself, I, I'm singing these words and I don't even hardly believe them. The, the response to that is not to say, therefore I can't sing them. That's not the point. The point isn't that we only say and sing things that we believe. The point is that we say and sing things so that we'll believe them. They're aspirational. A big reason, a big mission for us as a church is to be the kind of place that strengthens your belief simply by saying things over and again. That's why we say the creed every other week. That's why we speak sermons, sing songs. It has a strengthening effect and a reminding effect for those of us who through sin have started to forget. We come to church to remember what sin has caused you to forget. We want to speak words over you that remind you who and whose you are. And then throughout the week, in households, in small groups, to yourself, you need to keep speaking those words which have power to shape who you think you are. Shape your identity. There's this passage from um, Martin Lloyd-Jones in another book uh, on this subject. It's called Spiritual Depression. And he talks about one of the um, remedies for spiritual depression. By that he means just um, spiritual weakness, forgetfulness, uh, feelings of dryness, dis disconnection from God. All of these things are the product of 
prevailing habitual sin. He talks about one of the remedies for that being speaking to yourself. When he says taking ourselves in hand, he means addressing ourselves. So let me read this to you. He says, The ultimate cause of all spiritual depression is unbelief. For if it were not for unbelief, even the devil could do nothing. What about the treatment? The first thing we have to learn is what the psalmist learned. We must learn to take ourselves in hand. He goes on. This is the very essence of wisdom in this matter. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? I don't know how you do it, because it'll be different for each one of us, but to weave into your schedule, your timetable, your daily rhythms, an opportunity to remind yourself of who you are. I'll tell you what I do. This is just like first thing in the morning, and it's before I reach for my damn phone. It's got to be. Otherwise, I'm lost. All right, so it's first, I wake up, I wish I wasn't awake, and then I remember this is what I do. I just think of myself in like kind of concentric circles. I remind myself of my identities. That is my identity expressed in different spheres. So I begin with, I'm a child of God. Right? God is my daddy. I am his son. I remind myself of that central identity. And then I remind myself that I'm a creature. Of flesh and blood, I'm a, I'm a creature. I remind myself of the things that I need to do to take care of myself, food and water and exercise and sleep and just remind myself of those things because my creaturely aspect is not disconnected from my identity in Christ, right? I'm an embodied person. And then I just work out, right? I'm, I'm a, a husband, I'm a father, I'm a pastor, I'm a citizen, and I just, I just simply remind myself of, of my responsibilities, um, my identity. And that's, I, I, like, that's five minutes, maybe, plus five minutes of prayer, just asking God to help me live out those responsibilities in a Christ-like way. Ten minutes, right? We've all got that time. If it's not first thing in the morning, then it's some point during the day, set, set a reminder. You don't have to do what I've done. That's not, it's not thus saith the Lord, but I just find that helpful. Speak to yourself. Remind yourself who you are, and then we'll do it as a church as well every single Sunday. That's your stance. We sing songs like, um, like that Hillsong song. I've got some of the words here. This is really, really helpful. I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. You are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. Who the Son sets free is free indeed. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. Great songs, great words to sing. Reinforcing of who we are. Essential if we're going to go into battle against sin. I love what The Apostle John says, I mean, you just find this throughout the scriptures, but this is one of my favorites. He says, dear friends, we are God's children now. And we all just go, ah, that's right. We are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure, right? That's Savior and Lord. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. We're God's children now, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. It's both of those things. Everyone who has this hope, sure, certain, guaranteed hope, in him purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. Puts sin to death just as we follow a sinless savior. That's my next point. Not only do we need to know who we are, we need to kill who we were. 
Read this with me, verse 5 to 7. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them. Put to death. I'm not a huge fan of the death penalty. I know that when I I lived in America for a couple of years, I really struggled with the idea that the state could terminate someone's life. Not a big fan of that. But the logic of it is really consistent. Like the logic of it is these people have committed such heinous crimes and are such a threat, a danger to civil society that they must be terminated. They must no longer exist. We must extinguish the threat to civilization. And so we kill them. That's the same logic that Paul has in this passage. Paul sees sin as such an existential threat to your soul that he says the only way we can deal with it is to kill it, exterminate, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. Then he gives some examples of those things. It's not an exhaustive list. But anything that belongs to the flesh, the flesh, the earthly nature is just what belonged to you before you were saved. Anything outside of God's ways and His will, outside of His his righteousness, His nature, put it to death. Kill who you were. This kind of language doesn't sit well with us if we have adopted this kind of cultural moments attitude towards sin, which is like, yeah, it's, I mean, it's not great, but what are you going to do? I think if we're going to get anywhere with this, and, and like, this will be a complete waste of your time, if you don't stop for a second and ask, do I think that persistent sin is a danger to my soul? Like, how do you think about sin? How do you conceive of it? Is it a kind of mild inconvenience and something that makes you feel guilty and you'd rather not? Or is it a tiger snake on your front doorstep? You have to cut, like, you have to figure it out. How you think about it will determine how you act, right? So is it, yeah, oh, man, sinned again, gosh darn it. Or is it, this is going to destroy me for eternity? You have to, you have to determine what level of threat it is before you then act accordingly. Jesus says, sin is a threat to your soul. So if you're like me and you want to follow Jesus and you believe that he only ever speaks truth, in fact that he is the way, the truth, and the life, then you need to come to terms with what he thinks and then reshape your opinions after his. And he says in Matthew chapter 5, this is what he says about sin and whether it's a threat. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So just take that as your standard of truth, reality, objectivity, 
and then just measure your attitude to sin against it and either ignore it and keep doing what you're doing anyway or reform it and repent. John Owen, The Mortification of Sin. Here's what he says about this. He asks you this morning, do you mortify? It's just an antiquated term for killing something, right? Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Set faith at work on Christ for the killing of your sin. His blood is the great sovereign remedy for sin-sick souls. Live in this and you will die a conqueror. Yea, you will, through the good providence of God, live to see your lust dead at your feet. Do you even believe it's possible to live to see your lust insert your particular prevailing sins dead at your feet? Or have you just come to terms with the fact that they'll always be there and always be a threat? Notice the the method he gives us. Set faith at work. This is vital. This is vital, all right? If you're going, if if you're with me and you hate sin and you see it as a threat to your eternal soul, then, listen, if you're going to go, go into battle, you've got to have that stance, but you need to know the method. The method is to set faith at work. You need both of those aspects, faith and work. Sanctification, just a big, a big word for you being made more like Jesus, is a gift of God's grace, but it doesn't happen apart from your active involvement. God calls you to actively engage in the work of being made more like Christ. Set faith at work. So if you just go to it like it's work, if, okay, so here, here's, what, here's the case study. You've sinned. And it's that same sin that keeps afflicting you. That prevailing, habitual sin. You've sinned. You feel convicted, which is a gift of grace from God, that you recognize it as being wrong, being a threat to your very existence, right? You're convicted. You say, never again. And then, more often than not, we get to work on it and say, all right, I'm going to change these behaviors or, I don't know, whatever. I'm going to make a change. And then like so many New Year's resolutions, we're great at it for the first day and moderately good at it for the second, and then by the third, we're wrecked, all right? Because we're going at it with work, but no faith. Paul kind of addresses this in Colossians chapter 2, just the chapter before. He, he talks about these, these man-made regulations, forms of religion, which are just like New Year's resolutions, all right? He says, if you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Resolution. All these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines, although these have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility, severe treatment of the body. They are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. Why? It's not because true repentance mortification of sin, living after Christ doesn't require work. It'll require more work than you could ever dream of. It'll require everything you have. It's going to take work. But it's work applied with the faith, of, uh, faith in the finished work of Jesus. 
He's already done the work, and so then I get to my work applying his finished work to it. Otherwise, I'm just pounding my head against a brick wall. They don't have any value in curbing self-indulgence. Here's an analogy, and it might be horrible, all right, because it just popped into my head. Feel free to tell me if this, is a, if this doesn't work. But the red door is really important to us, right? It's, it's where we get our name from. It comes from the story of the Exodus. God's people are in slavery to the Egyptians. God sends all of these plagues against the Egyptians to try and get Pharaoh to let his people go. He ignores them. God sends this horrible final plague, which is the angel of death moves through Egypt and kills all the firstborn, humans and animals, right? Just destruction. And he says to his people that if they paint the doors of their houses with the blood of a perfect lamb, unblemished lamb, that the, the angel will pass over their households and they'll be spared. They won't lose their firstborn. Now, here's the analogy, right? Um, if the people, if there was no promise from God that he would pass over the houses and the people just went and got some blood and painted on their, door, their doorposts, it would do nothing, right? It's just, you're just slapping some blood on a door. You're just defacing your house. But because they did it, in response to God giving them a promise, it made it effective. That is, they were expressing faith in what God had told them, and therefore, the otherwise ambiguous action of painting a door became the means by which God saved them. This is a bit complicated, isn't it? it like, just painting the door does nothing. Doing it in accordance with God's promise meant everything made it effective. I think that's kind of what's going on here. If we just get to the work of trying to be better people, trying to sin less, we're not going to achieve anything. We're always going to fail. Not of any value in curbing self-indulgence, just doing stuff. It's just self-help. But if we take God's promise and apply it to the work of putting sin to death, then it's effective. It's made effective by God's power according to his promise. That's what I'm saying. You got it? All right. So, set faith at work. You've sinned. It's that sin again. You feel demoralized, defeated, condemned. You're convicted by the power of the Spirit. And then, by faith, you get to work. You say, Lord Jesus, I know that your blood was shed for all of my sin. I know that your resurrection was God's demonstration of your victory over all sin. I know that you have said that I am more than a conqueror through Christ. Therefore, by the power of the Spirit and under the blood of the Lord Jesus, I put this sin to death. Strengthen me to resist temptation. And then you do that again. And then you do that again. And then you do that again. And you do it every day. You do it alone in your room. You do it at the table with your family. You do it in the auditorium with your church. And by God's grace, you live to see your sin dead at your feet with its head cut off. Number one, know who you are. Number two, kill who you were. Number three, live who you are. So we live in this culture obsessed by identity. It is like the most powerful thing, cultural force in our world today, at least in the, in the West, not so much elsewhere. 
they think we're a bit strange. But we are like obsessed. I, this is who I am, right? Uh, and the problem is that so much of our identity that we assume for ourselves is based on shallow, shifting categories. Changeable. That's how we like it, actually. We want it to be fluid. We want to be able to, uh, well, I said it was that last week, but now I'm this, and this is my true self. Our identity in Christ is something objective, eternal. We don't determine it for ourselves. It is decreed by God. The, the, the great thing about this is, like, if we're going to live out who we are, we don't have to second-guess it every other week based on how I feel today or what I look good in this week or, I don't know, what the weather is or what the prevailing winds of culture are or who my favourite pop star is this well, whatever, like, trends. This is timeless truth. Your identity, according to verse 3, is hidden with Christ in God. There is nothing more secure in the universe. So, he says, verse 8 to 10, we're nearly done. He says, but now put away all the following anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your Creator. You need to be really clear about what was your old self, and what is your new self. last job I had before this one was working in a garage, like a mechanics, and just turning up every day in overalls that were just, started out blue and were just black with grease. There's no point washing them, they were just going to get covered in grease again, and so, um, uh, so, so that's what I did every day, just turn up and add some more grease to myself, and, um, and then I was ordained, and suddenly I was not in greasy overalls, I was in robes. My first job, I was robes, um, clerical robes. And instead of turning up at a garage, um, which, to be honest, the culture there was not something I might want my kids to uh, ever be around, let's put it that way. They they were good people, but it was just a horrible, horrible culture. Um, to be trying to follow Jesus in the midst of. Anyway, suddenly I was, you know, visiting nursing homes, like I told you, and um, running prayer services and wearing robes. And it just, it would, it would be so insane. It would have been evidence that I totally forgot myself if one day I just turned up back at the mechanics again in my robes and started ripping an engine apart. It would be... That's the kind of language Paul uses here. He's like, you, you had an old self, you had an old occupation, you had clothing and garb that went along with that, but now you have a new self. You've been clothed with Christ. You've put that off, so put this on. If you've put that off, then you need to put away anger and wrath, malice, slander, filthy language and lying and every other thing you can think of that isn't Christ-like. You've put on new self. The old self had practices. You don't practice them anymore. You don't work in a garage anymore. You've got a new occupation. It's a good word. There's a whole new life that is occupying your mind, your heart, your soul, your body. So live who you are. That's the strategy, right? It's really clear. He's given us a strategy 
put away, put on, be renewed. It's a strategy there. But here's the problem. This is the problem for us. As Peter Drucker said, strategy, I mean, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. So you can have a strategy. You, know, you apply this to your, life, your work life, your family life, anything. Like You can have a strategy, but the culture that you try and make that strategy work within will just consume it. It doesn't matter how good your strategy is. It doesn't matter if you're fired up now and, like, yeah, I'm going to put sin to death and I know like that I need to apply the finished work of Jesus and then get to work. All of that is going to be eaten alive by the culture that you live in. Do you know that? You can have all of these convictions and even start to implement some of these strategies, but if you live in a culture saturated with sin, you are going to go the way of culture. Now, I'm not saying you need to isolate yourself in some kind of monastery and just keep yourself away from the world. That was never Jesus' strategy. He prayed for his disciples, right? I pray for them, not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. But you need to know this, and this this is my last thing, right? If you feel convicted this morning, that's a gift of God's grace. Thank you, Lord. If you want to implement some of the strategies that Paul has given us in Colossians chapter 3, praise the Lord. It's a gift from God. But if you just go back into a culture that's saturated with all of the things you're trying to put to death, you're going to fail. It's not a judgment on you. That's just the way the world works. So here's, here's some things I'm talking about. Meet the media you consume. You are what you eat. It's true of media as well. I hate to say it, but it's true. Some of my favorite things to watch and listen to are things that are just going to enable me to sin. It's true. The media that you consume, the friends you surround yourself with, you just just fell in with the wrong crowd. How often do we say that? The kind of work you do, that which occupies your time, most of your life. Um, You fill the blanks. This is something you need to discern for yourself. But the truth is, culture eats strategy for breakfast. So if Paul is telling you to put away anger and wrath and malice and filthy language and lying and you then live saturated in a culture that enables those things, well, it's no mystery when we fail to put our sin to death. I would just suggest to you that a couple of ways for you to really uh, strengthen yourself in going to battle to kill sin, like just keep coming to church each week. I would say that, wouldn't I? But I'm, like, this is the only thing I know. Just keep coming to church week after week. And here's my expectation of what church is. Very rarely will it be this cataclysmic experience. More often than not, it'll be a, uh, just a regular, like a heartbeat. There's nothing cataclysmic about a heartbeat unless you're having a heart attack, right? But just like a steady, rhythmic, Sunday to Sunday, keeping you alive. Surrounding yourself with people and a culture that affirms the things that the Bible is calling you to. Then I would just break that down into smaller groups, like join a small group. We've talked about that already. Then I would take that and break it down once more. Get one or two other people that you can meet with who know you well enough and love you well enough that you can confess into them and then they can be like Christ to you. Right? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You ha- they have to do both. 
If they just say, oh, I don't condemn you, you just end up with a group like I had in my last church with like 12 porn-addicted men who were just soft on each other. Like, oh, you, you, you looked at porn again this week? Oh, me too. Oh, okay. And it, like, we didn't get anywhere. Because you need someone to say, I don't condemn you, go and sin no more. You need both, all right? So when you're looking for someone to be that person for you, you need both. You need someone like Jesus. Um, and then commit and schedule in regular times to spend with them to address the thing that is poised to kill you. Sin is a threat to our souls. We have to go to war. Let's do it together. Let me pray for you and for me. Father, thank you so much for your word and thank you uh, for this word this morning from our brother Paul. Oh Lord God, I thank you that you're honest with us about the threat that sin is to our souls and I pray that we would respond accordingly. Lord, you know how weak we are. Please strengthen us. Lord, you know that we need help. Please help us to help one another. Lord, you know that ultimately we are doomed without you. So please be gracious to us. We thank you most of all for the demonstration of your love on the cross. That your son, our savior Jesus, would die in our place and for our sin. We plead the blood of Jesus over us as a church this morning. Claim the victory over Satan, sin, and death. And pray that you would send us out in the power of your spirit to live and work to your praise and glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm just going to sit tight now and just um, listen to the next song.